Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. Hey, welcome in. It is indeed Downtown, the podcast. I'm Rich Kimball here with Carrie Haskell. And this is episode number 161. Brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security means strength. This week on the program, a couple of interesting and entertaining conversations for you. A little bit later on, writer Colin Fleming will cover a wide range of topics with us, talking about what he thinks is one of the best sports movies all time, 1949's The Setup with the great Robert Ryan. He'll also note the passing of actor Paul Soles, best known perhaps as the voice of Hermie in the Rankin-Bass production of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, one of Colin's favorites. Uh, he'll also talk about uh, Sam Cooke's great album, Night Beat, and a couple of recent pieces he uh, wrote for Jazz Times on superb instrumentalists Charlie Christian and Eric Dolphy. Up first, though, Stephen Tobolowsky, a regular visitor to the podcast and to our radio show, actor, author, storyteller, and playwright as well. Stephen has written a, a wonderful play called A Good Day at Auschwitz, based on a powerful story from his book, My Adventures with God. And it is out there and available right now as an audio play through L.A. Theater Works. And we had a chance to talk about that and more recently with Stephen Tobolowsky. He's a two-time downtown madness champion, but he's also, we understand, and we're reminded again this past week, that he is a former New York City 4th of July watermelon seed spitting champion, Stephen Tobolowsky. Hello, Stephen. I am doing very well, Rich, and thank you, finally, for reminding people that I was the watermelon seed-spitting champion of Central Park on the 4th of July. They took my picture, actually, for the Sunday New York Times. This would have been the biggest publicity I ever got, but they bumped me <laughs> for the picture of a baby sitting on a watermelon, which I thought was a little cliche. Really? Yeah. But—, but when I did spit that seed, and I don't know if your audience is interested, they should be. Oh, yes. Because you have plenty of watermelon in Maine. That The way you do the seed spitting contest, it isn't just a matter of spitting seeds. You spit for distance and for accuracy. They have a starting line, and you could, you could run up to the starting line if you want. You spit the seed, but it has to land within about a three or four foot range and they run chalk lines down the side of, of the starting line. So you understand there is a corridor in which the seed has to land for it to count. So some people spit those seeds, but they spin out of the boundaries. Amateurs. Uh, amateurs. My seed, the seed, I sp the first, and they give you three. They gave you three. M my seed, the first seed I spit was about, I'm, it's close to like 66 feet, six inches. And it was right down the middle. <laughs> and I had, those New Yorkers, they were mere amateurs because growing up in Texas, <laughs> I spent my life spitting seeds. That's what we do all, all summer at least. And so I had a whole technique. And at that particular time, there was not a world championship record for seed spitting. But recently, I looked up 
in IMDb or not IMDb, but just Google wherever you wherever you can find on the Internet. What is the world championship seed spit of all time? And I missed it by about two inches. Wow. So at that particular time in my life, I did not even know how close I was to being (laughs) the best in the world. Uh, I just thought I was a Texas kid in New York. Fourth of July, spitting a seed. But I was so close to touching immortality. <laughs> but again, I was bumped. I was bumped for the baby sitting on the watermelon. Uh, unfair. And you also, by the way, uh, you, know, you know this. I'm, I'm telling listeners, though, you recently celebrated a birthday. So a happy belated birthday. Thank you. I, I fell off a cliff. I, I turned 70. And, you know, I was one of these people who was forever young until I turned 70. And then there's no way you could get around that except by telling yourself that while I'm in California, I'm in terrific health. My, I, I went to see my doctor because I'd been losing so much weight during the pandemic. I repeat, I have been losing weight over the pandemic. One of six people who have lost weight during the pandemic. I've lost 20 pounds. How? How? Uh, the only thing I could think is that Ann makes homemade cinnamon rolls every Friday and homemade sourdough bread all week. And in the afternoon, I drink a dark finished gin. So not that it's a health tip that I want, want to spread, <laughs> but I eat a lot of homemade sweets and drink gin all afternoon. And the weight just is falling off of me. <laughs> I, have, I have no idea. I think it is, though that Annie is a terrific cook and my wife is a phenomenal cook, but she is a healthy cook. So I think because of the pandemic schedule, because we're always up so early in the morning because there's so many chores, we eat dinner at let's say 5.30, 6 o'clock at night. And most of it is vegetables. We, we don't eat a lot of fatty foods or or pastas or anything. We have sweets like she cooks, but they're relatively, you know, at the end of the week on Friday is a treat. Uh, I think it is the, what do you call it? Intermittent fasting Mm. that, that by, by eating a relatively healthy meal in the evening at six o'clock and not eating breakfast until seven the next morning, you're really not eating for 13 hours straight. Mm. And I think that has been, the chief source of my losing weight. But I went to see my doctor, you know, just to make sure I wasn't dying or anything. And he was thrilled. You know, he was the guy who said I was going to need open heart surgery, which I did have in 2011. So he's very conscious of checking up on me and my heart. And they did the echocardiogram, which is a very unpleasant test because you have to lay on a table sideways for a long period of time. And that for me was unpleasant, but nothing is painful. But he said, it is amazing. My blood work is normal. My heart looks like nothing ever happened to it. He he said, it's a miracle. So I feel like I'm a very young 70. So I would say I could be the new 63. Oh, Uh, well, I'll I'll be 63 in in a month. So so just consider that I'm I'm joining you I, in health. I, I look at you as even being younger than that. <laughs> but let's let's talk about the big news, which is well today 
uh, your play uh-huh. becomes available, A Good Day at Auschwitz, from, from your wonderful book, My Adventures with God, the remarkable story uh, of you and your friend Abe. And, and for anybody uh-huh. who has not heard the story or listened to the podcast or read the book, can you just give a little bit of the background of how you and Abe came together? I guess so much of our coming together was catastrophe in that my mother had passed away. And so I decided because I was unemployed and I believe I was in poor health at the time, I I was having throat problems. I couldn't speak and I was going to have to have throat surgery. I had a lot of time on my hands. I was unemployed. So I decided I would do the honorary Jewish tradition of going to morning and evening services where you say the Kaddish, the prayer for those who have departed, 7.30 in the morning, 7 in in the evening, every day for 11 months, which is a huge, huge commitment. Uh, But I was doing nothing, so I thought I would do it to honor my mother. And you meet an odd group of people who are willing to pray at dawn and not go to Starbucks to get a cappuccino. So you at 7.30, there's this odd group of people, and it wasn't a social group. Right. It isn't like, hey, let's get together and do something. And, and it's because, if I remember it, because you need to have 10 people there, right? You have to have 10 people. And so you have a group of people, usually about six or seven, who are there to mourn. But then some of the real, I don't know, just... Lovely, lovely people. In Judaism, you call them minches, you know, people that are really great, great people. They show up at 7.30 just so you'll have 10, so you could say the prayer, because you begin to feel like you need to say the prayer. It becomes the spiritual center of your day. When I would say the prayer for my mother, I would just have all these memories of her, and sometimes I'd laugh or I would cry. I, I get lost in thought in a memory. And I was shocked this one service. And this is a very unusual event. An old man kind of shuffled up to me and said, you're here for your mother, aren't you? And I said, yeah, how, how did you know? And he said, I could tell the way you said your, her name. I could tell it wasn't a wife or a child. Uh, I said, yes, I'm saying the prayer for my mother. He says, would you like to have breakfast uh, sometime, tomorrow maybe? So he invited me to breakfast. And it was at breakfast he took off his coat. It it was his favorite little hangout, uh, Marv's Deli, not far from his home. He took off his jacket, and there was the line of numbers on his arm. And I was stunned because you see it in the Steven Spielberg movie, you heard about it, but who has seen the line of numbers, the tattoo from Auschwitz on someone's arm? And I saw it on Abe's arm and was flabbergasted. And he says, you never seen this? And I said, not for real, not for real. He says, believe me, this is for real. Three years in Auschwitz. And over the next two years, Abe and Abe became my buddy. I want to say my drinking buddy. He he <laughs> he loved to drink, and he felt it, there was some stigma drinking alone, especially at eight in the morning, <laughs> for some reason. So he invited me over to his apartment, and we would have a hit of schnapps and would play poker together, seven card stud. <laughs> and over the next two years, every day, Abe and I met, and we'd have breakfast 
and he would start telling me stories from his life. And eventually I started writing them down and I told them, Abe, I'm going to be notating. I, I began asking him active questions about his growing up in Poland and his schooling and all this. And eventually the subject came to Auschwitz and Abe loved it. He loved that his story was being heard. And he felt, I, I, I mentioned in the story that he felt like a king returning from exile. And he began to tell me all the stories about him at Auschwitz. And it is a story that is unlike anything I have ever imagined in my life, both in the terror and in the wonder of it, because Abe fell in love at yeah. Auschwitz. And how does that happen? Because the men and the women were separated. How does that happen? And I became fascinated with his story. And over two years, I wrote A Good Day at Auschwitz, th this story. And my wife, Ann, said, you know, we have a friend, Alan Mandel, who used to run Lincoln Center in New York. And he used to be in the theater group where Ann and I met, Los Angeles Theater Center. And she said, you know, Alan would be perfect for Abe. What if you wrote a play and it's you and Abe and the card playing and the stories. And so I began that process. Uh, read it for Norman Lear, who loved it. And eventually this little script made it to Los Angeles Theater Works, where it is now. And the head of Los Angeles Theater Works called me up and said, we have to do A Good Day at Auschwitz. We have to. And they got the money to record it, to do it. It is not a Zoom play or those things that are popular now, but this is an audio play. You can listen to it in your car, listen to it night before you go to bed. It is quite funny. It is quite heartbreaking. It, and because it is true, it is a true story, it is downright amazing. And it makes you... It, it makes you not only question what humanity is, but also makes you realize, I think it was Lincoln who said that, we're that we can be close to the angels. How, how some people extended themselves to Abe, mm. that his survival was based on people who, unlikely allies, who risked their lives to save him. And it is a love story that extends over time, and it is amazing. And I'm so thrilled. We recorded it. We did a uh, – it was a special recording. Uh, so they wanted to make it in 360, like when you put on the headphones, that it's like a whole audio sphere, they call it. Right. And so we were in – Alan, who's playing Abe, and I were in different parts of studio. We never saw each other. Hmm. And – we had to do microphones at certain attitudes and places in our little rooms to create this 360 degree uh, recording. And then they added Foley afterwards and music. And I just heard uh, a cut of it, I guess about a little over a week ago. And it was fantastic. I, I got to say the, the technicians who were behind this did a fantastic job at LA Theater Works. So 
it premieres today. You could download it today. And I, and for what I understand, the download is kind of like an audiobook. It's not like some of the plays where you have a limited amount of time to hear it. You know, you can right. You buy a ticket and you hear it. You buy it and you buy it like an audiobook and you can listen to it any number of times you want in your car, in your bed, wherever you want to go. And uh, and it's on various platforms and it's all over the world. Mm. This is something I did not know. Los Angeles Theater Works is all over the world. Their uh, series of recorded plays goes everywhere. So I am thrilled that everyone is going to be hearing Abe's story after today. Once, once again, this is, uh, it, it, it's a thrill for me. Well, you wrote in the book, Stephen, that uh, it's important for us to hear the stories of people like Abe, who, as you say, ha have been to the other side and have come back to tell us about it. Yes. And, and I mentioned that the other side I'm talking about is the other side of ourselves. That we, we uh, I mentioned in there that <laughs> I, I was writing this and I came across this Cherokee story and it really describes so much to me that this little boy was having a nightmare. A little boy was having a nightmare, he comes to his father and he says, I've been dreaming of these two wolves fighting and they're fighting all night and they fight all day. And the little boy's terrified and the father says, we all have two wolves fighting inside of us. One wolf is kind and generous and noble, and the other is greedy and vicious and cruel. And they fight all night. They fight all day. And the little boy says, who wins? And the father says, the one you feed. Wow. <laughs> and that's, that's the story of it, man. The, the people that were cruel to Abe were remarkable people that you would not have expected people to turn their back on him and betray him. And the people that were kind to Abe, you would not believe, but they were the ones who chose to feed the kind wolf, to, to feed the one that, that mends the world. And uh, the details that Abe had of his time at Auschwitz and his ability to survive and, and his escape, he escaped from the second death camp because uh, near the end of the world war, the Germans didn't want anyone to know what they were doing. And so they were trying to kill as many prisoners as they could and then ship some out to another death camp that was further from the front, closer to Germany. So Abe was shipped out after three years to another death camp where he escaped. And the story of his escape is again remarkable. Uh, I don't know. It, I, I gave the story to Abe's son, who thanked me so much. He said because his father had never told him the details of what he went through. And this is a legacy. And I realized, you know, when we sat down in the synagogue to say the Kaddish prayer, and the interesting thing about the Kaddish prayer, the prayer I was saying for my mother, the prayer for the dead, nowhere in the prayer does it say anything about death. Nowhere. It says nothing about death or dying. It just extols the greatness of God, the generosity of God, and, and the power of the heavens to heal. And I'm beginning to find that the psychology of that prayer 
is so powerful because we begin to plug in to the part of us that heals. And, and that's what Abe did in his entire life. If you met this guy, like I met him in synagogue, you would never think he went through hell on earth, the worst place on earth, where within 15 minutes of the train arriving, every woman and every child was executed in the gas chamber. Within 15 minutes of arriving off the train, and the men and boys that were old enough to work were tattooed and put into work shifts. And the ones who worked all day, they died. And, and it, it is a nightmare beyond all reckoning. And the, you know, somebody says that there are only two stories you could tell. This is from a playwriting teacher is, and I think I'm saying this right. Man goes on a journey. Stranger comes to town. Those are the <laughs> only two stories that you could tell. <laughs> this particular story has both of those in it because man goes on a journey. Uh, you have Abe and his journey to Auschwitz and out of Auschwitz, and a stranger comes to town, you have Abe coming into that death camp and seeing what happens. You have those stories. And another playwriting teacher told me <laughs> somewhat contradictory information, but still potent. He says, Stephen, the only one story people really want to hear is the hero's journey. Mm. And that is what a good day in Auschwitz is. It is 100% the hero's journey. And that's kind of what I feel like I mentioned at the very beginning of our little talk that it was catastrophe that brought me together with Abe, not only the passing of my mother, but also my health and my imminent surgery and my inability to speak. Uh, I went for two months without being able to speak. And so I wrote so those catastrophes brought me to Abe, and what a meeting that was. And the funniest guy you would ever know, you would never expect he went through hell on earth. Generous, kind, always with a joke, always with a smile. And it makes you feel, if he can do it, I will not be defeated by anything. Well, there are so many wonderful stories <laughs> from uh, Abe's uncle killing a Cossack to uh, the girls. And of course, uh, well, the ending of the story as well is, is incredibly powerful. You can download it at LATW, latheaterworks.org. I have downloaded it, but I'm, I'm waiting to listen, Stephen, to tonight when I can do it right. I need to get some Canadian Club and Apple Cake. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, gotta get the Canadian Club and Apple Cake. Oh, gosh, yeah. Now, and, I wanted to uh, tell you as well, Carrie, uh, uh, as I mentioned, just got back from, from New Orleans, and he listened to the entire season of the Tobolowsky Files uh, on his trip down and back. And, Carrie, and you were telling me, well, you had a you had a Tobo moment. I did. Uh, yeah, I listened to half of, uh, your, of this past season on the way down and the other half on the way back. And in the final episode, you, you were mentioned that uh, you had been talking with Ann about telling the stories and that she said that by sharing your stories, it rings a bell with other people. And man, I can really attest to that because I, I uh, Friday evening into Saturday evening before we left the city, um, one of the things you had talked about earlier in, in the podcast was 
that that great moment when you have a day where you have the time, the energy, and the money to do to have everything you need in, in a day. And those are very rare. I had one of those 24 hour periods from Friday evening until Saturday evening, um, on the trip. And it was just hearing you talk about it. It was like, Oh, he's talking about me, (laughs) you know, this, and just that wonderful connection that happens. I mean, that that's one example, but it happens so much in, in the Tobolowski files. The the thing I learned when, when I was a child telling stories, I always tried to embellish the stories because I thought, oh, I can make it better. I can make it funnier. Mm. And then as I got older, I realized, well, and I had some great acting teachers, too. I got to say, I learned it from acting to Ed K. Martin. He said, all we want is the truth. We otherwise we have a clever actor. We don't want a clever actor. You know, we want brilliance. And the only way you have brilliance is by telling the truth. So I began doing the Tobolowsky files is just telling the truth. And even if the ending of the story doesn't seem as uh, dramatic as it could, if I kind of altered the facts, I have found that the true story really pays off because the true story keeps going on. I'll tell you, here's here's a, a case I had. If you remember one of my early stories about a teacher I had at college, Joan Potter, uh, Joan Potter did everything she could to run me out of school, <laughs> to to get me out of the act, certainly to get me out of the acting program. And then at the end, she tried to derail me to make sure I could graduate. She was and, and I was 19 when I encountered this grown up who for some reason took it upon herself to try to destroy me in any way possible. And that story is a case of the hero's journey in that I used my instinct to know because she was actually manipulating the system to make sure that I would be completely screwed, blued and tattooed. And I thought there's no way I can trust that the system will help me. So I have to stand up for myself and figure a way to use a system to, to get back at her. And the way I did that was I thought, what's the worst thing she could do? She could keep me from graduating. So what if I take my graduate exam early? And I went to my theater history teacher and said, is there any rule against a student not taking graduate exam senior year? And he goes, no, no, you could do it whenever you want. So at the end of my sophomore year, two years early, I took my graduate exam to graduate from theater at SMU. And sure enough, at the end of my senior year, she had me expelled from school before finals, which meant I would not be able to graduate. And my faculty advisor said, we're so sorry, Stephen, you know, you have the grades, you have everything, but you won't be able to take the graduate exam. So you won't be able to get your degree. And I said, but I've taken the graduate exam. (laughs) And he said, no, we haven't given it yet. We give it next week. I said, no, I took it two years ago. You know, talk to Tony Graham White, uh, my theater history teacher. He told me he would keep the test for him. Call him, call him. He has it in his office. He better have it or I'll kill him. (laughs) And Tony came up and had it and then saluted to me. (laughs) And 
this teacher was absolutely fierce. So I told just the true story of this. This is called Conference Hour, and I believe it's episode 12 or something of the Tobolowsky Files around in there. Anyway, I just told the true story of what happened right before the end of the pandemic. I uh, went to New York at the beginning of the pandemic. I was in New York and I went to Fiddler on the Roof in Yiddish, uh, a version of the musical Fiddler on the Roof in Yiddish. And in the lobby, this big bearded man, big gray beard came up to me and said, Stephen, you don't recognize me. I'm John, John Tillotson. I was two years behind you at SMU. I just heard your story on the podcast about Joan Potter, and she did the same thing to me <laughs> two years after you. Mm. And she tried to keep me out of, she tried to keep me from graduating, and I had not known your story at the time, but I ended up doing the same thing you did in that I went around the system and took my, my test and I graduated. And not only did he graduate, I was given the Edith Renshaw Award for Outstanding Undergraduate Student in the SMU Theater Department when I graduated. John got the same award. <laughs> and uh, when you tell a true story, it brings other people to you mm. that the same damn thing happened to them. And, and some of my stories are not heroes journeys, but, but, you know, I, I just felt there had to be some sort of accurate record of what a life was, was like with the wins and losses and the loves and loss of love, just to be honest about it, truthful about it. And that people will see their own reflection in that mirror. Well, we do indeed. And I would say the new season, the most recent season of the Tobolowsky Files, for my money, uh, the best one yet. Uh, a Good Day at Auschwitz, available now for download at latheaterworks.org, latw.org. Stephen, always a treat for us. Thank you for making a little time to uh, talk about, well, so many things today. Well, my pleasure. It's always a pleasure to talk to you guys, Rich. Thank you so much. Stephen, always so good when he comes on. But, man, his stories about Abe, just fantastic, and, and the audio play is, is so good. It's good to have something created like that now, where it's not just people reading it, it's a production, and, it, and, and with this story, it was just produced. The story is so good, and the production meets those that level of, of excellence. Yeah, and I thought you know, that it didn't get in the way. It enhanced mm. the play just with the, the, the proper balance of, of sound effects and... Uh, uh, music and some of the recording techniques they use that Stephen talked about, and it's great. You can go to latw.org, and uh, it's a pretty inexpensive download, and you got it forever. Anytime you want to listen to it or share it, uh, it is called A Good Day at Auschwitz from Stephen Tobolowsky. We've got a quick word coming up from the good folks at Cross Insurance. When we come back, writer Colin Fleming on Downtown the Podcast. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. 
is a mean old world to live in all by yourself. A little bit of Sam Cooke from his wonderful album Nightbeat. We talked about that album, a a little jazz work from people like Charlie Christian and Eric Dolphy. Actor Robert Ryan and Paul Souls, the voice of Hermie and Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer in a wide-ranging recent conversation with writer Colin Fleming. Let's begin with a great movie and, and one of my favorite actors because he, he just always disappears into a role. Uh, 1949's The Setup with the great Robert Ryan. Interesting you should say that because I think he tends to do the opposite and doesn't disappear into a role and sort of overshadows the films he's in, especially if he's carrying a film. Like a lot of little Robert Ryan goes a long way, I would say. But this film, I think, is a bit different because he is underplaying in this movie, I would say, the setup. And I just think it's one of the two or three best sports films ever made. Like I I watched it again over the weekend or thereabouts, and it's unity of action and place and that whole notion of cohesion that Aristotle was talking about is realized in this, it's not one set. Well, it is one set, but like you move from like building to building, but everything takes place within like a city block within two, three, four hours, whatever it is for a night at the fight. And it's uh, it's realistic, which is always a good characteristic of a sports movie. And part of that's because uh, apparently Ryan had some boxing experience back when he was in college. The actual setup of the setup is fantastic because he's with his wife and he's 35 and he's punch drunk after all of these years on the road and these these tank towns. And they're in, ironically enough, I'm sure you noticed this. Paradise City. This is before Guns N' Roses. <laughs> it's like very on the thematic nose with that. And the cheap hotel he's staying at with his wife is across the street from the boxing arena. And I like how the windows of the locker room at the boxing arena are opened in such a way that he can look out because his wife wants him to give this up. She doesn't want him doing this anymore. And he's given her his, his ticket to come and watch him get his brains cudgeled in in all likelihood. But he's weirdly confident. Like, you can tell from the way he tells her, I'm going to win tonight. I think I can take this kid. But that's not just him blowing smoke. Like, he doesn't say that all the time. He actually has some reason to believe that he's going to beat this younger and faster and healthier, especially healthier, all of that, uh, fighter. And so I thought the locker room scene, so it's it's, it's this multiple... Bill. It's just fight after fight after fight. And Robert Ryan's character has to fight last, not because he's the marquee guy, but because of the radio audience. They want the radio fight to go out nationally, or it's probably not nationally, but like regionally at a certain time. And so then after everyone's done, there's like this last fight. People like the, the MC is like, oh, don't go home. You can stay. So you get this fantastic locker room talk, though. I think it's the most re- realistic locker room talk in any sports film of any kind. I think a hockey film maybe would carry the banner for this, but I think it's the most realistic locker room talk ever in any sports movie. And I also like the fact that uh, there's there's an element of uh, real time that takes place in the movie. Oh, yeah. That's 
just such a key part of this film is that it's not like strictly speaking real time because you have all these fights to get through, but it feels like it's actually taking place in real time. So like he can walk from the hotel to this place. His wife leaves the hotel. She's about to go into the arena, decides not to, takes a walk to a bridge, tears up her ticket. And it's all within like this city block. Uh, it's really the, the perfect sort of setting for this film. And then out to the actual boxing arena itself where they're going to have these fights. So he's, he's this sort of wise sage and he's, giving advice to these other guys. And other guys are just like dreaming. They're fooling themselves. One guy's like, oh, I'm going to do this. And they all know it's like, you're going to be lucky to get back here within an inch of your life. Sure enough, that happens. And there's like this young guy on the rise and all of this. And he's supposed to throw this fight. But his manager and trainer have so little confidence in his pugilistic prowess that they don't tell him. Like, he'll be bothered. And they just think he's so bad that he's going to lose anyway. So they're telling him, like, oh, just go into your shell. Uh, maybe, like, you won't get knocked out. He's like, no, my only chance is is to hit this, to clock this guy good just the once. Things start to turn in this fight, and you get this feeling that, like, lo and behold, he might be victorious here. And the way that it works out is, of course, he is. And now his manager and his trainer have fled. They've just left him in his corner. They've like, well, he's in mid-bout. And so then the gangster, who's been ripped off in his view, is going to apply some muscle to the Robert Ryan character for payback. They don't even really care that he didn't know, if they even believe him. So what happens is they, they break his, his hand with a brick outside the arena. And it's just like, you don't see it. It kind of happens off stage. So it's still within like, the visual line of the hotel. So he, like, he calls up to his wife as he's down on the ground. She sees him, he falls over, and she comes over, and they have this exchange that is marred. It's almost a perfect film, but I'd say it's marred by what she says. They give her the final line. Yeah, and a little bit, I don't want to say cheesy, but it didn't, it didn't need to be said. Because he's going to a place in his dialogue, and so he's on the ground, in his hand, he'll never fight again. And, like, they're having this weepy moment. And it's very believable. But you know what he wants to say. Like, you're waiting for him to say. It's not predictable, but you know what he wants to say. Is he's just like this puddle on the ground. Finally, he says it. He goes, I won. <laughs> I mean, it's, just, it's, it's still, I, I don't know. I think that it means something to him. And I think that's really what you want to have happen in a sports film. You want that idea of a victory to transcend what's going to happen in game three between the Islanders and the Bruins. Do you know what I mean? Mm. You want the win beyond the win. And I think that's the value that I've found in sports in my life because they're not significant in and of themselves, but lessons that I learned in sport and playing sport and even watching sport is something I can apply to more important things. And you get the sense that he's going to now do that too in his own life. So he won in like a few different ways, really. Well, if you get a chance to see it, uh, it's on TCM uh, fairly often. It's in the Criterion Collection, 1949's The Setup with Robert Ryan. We're talking with Colin Fleming here on Downtown. Some sad news uh, over the weekend as we heard about the passing uh, of an actor best known for his voice work, Paul Souls, who was 
uh, well, the voice of a character that I know has meant a lot to you through the years. Indeed. In fact, he lives on, that character, in the form of Hallway Hermie. You know, <laughs> you know Hallway Hermie? I do. Hallway Hermie is the elf from uh, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, and I was out last summer, I think it was, and I saw him in somebody's garbage sitting at the top. It was like dawn, and Hallway Hermie was like, can I come and live in your hallway? It's like, well, it's nicer than my actual apartment. Sure. That's fine. You can come back. And I took him and I ran up the stairs with him because that's what I was on my way out to do. And he was in my pocket. He's like, oh, this is kind of fun. I'm like, yeah, great, whatever. I'm a very, very lonely man, Mr. Kimball. So I brought him back. And yes, I I love the Rudolph special. In fact, I don't feel a need to only partake of Rudolph at Christmas. When I get to a happier place in life, I will be a guy who's firing up that Blu-ray on a day like June 1st. So he's 90 years old, Paul Souls. And I think the thing about Hermie, the character, and the way that Souls imbued that character, too, was Hermie was the linchpin of that beloved special. Like, I don't have any friends myself right now, but I know of people who serve that purpose of bringing people together in healthy and productive ways. I guess Peppermint Patty is kind of an example in the Peanuts strips once you get past like when she comes in and whenever it was she wasn't in like the christmas special or anything like that but like later on like in the 70s so i think like if you watch the rudolph special a bunch of months probably for most people note the role that Hermie plays he's first of all he's a pretty openly gay character i don't think that's like especially subtle so i'm sure that meant a lot to a lot of people at the time in a different time when it wasn't as favorable or comfortable or doable to perhaps be as one was or is. And so I think that's an important thing. I think very much the character was, was played that way, not in the kind of splashy way, not in like a cheap theatrical sort of for yucks kind of way, which you would get at the time. And Hermes a very good friend to Rudolph and also Yukon Cornelius. I like that scene when they, they get rejected by the, the lion guy, and they're in this, like, cottage, which is actually kind of nice. And they're, all, like, all in this bed. And Hermie's the one who rallies them together. It's like, it's settled. We, we, tomorrow we do this, and we, we leave at daybreak. And he's, like, kind of not so much the leader, but the friend glue. And you need some friend glue, I think. And Hermie was very much that way and that special. And, and apparently the only reason Paul Souls got the part is because Rankin and Bass were looking to save money at the time, and it was cheaper to use Canadian voice artists. Huh, that's interesting. And it's it's funny, too, because if you look at that first special, the Rudolph one, the production values of that, the details, they're at a different level than their subsequent. Mm. I, mean, I like them all. But they're like there's a level of detail in that particular special that you can watch it over and over and over again. And you just notice these telling little things like, okay, here are these people talking in the foreground and, oh, look what this like little bird is doing back here with this tree in the background. You don't, you don't get that with the ones that come after, I mean, whether they're the animated ones or the animagic ones, but I just, yeah, it's a, a heartening, inspiring, plucky character stands up to a bully who stands up, and that head elf guy, who stands up to, of course, the, abom the abominable snowman in the cave and the oink-oink and all of that. And 
someone who's uh, like willing to put down their own life for the betterment of their for the survival of their their friends. I remember watching this as a kid, thinking like that elf is like pretty cool, and it just goes to show too. It's cool to have a dream that isn't the dream that everyone else had. Like people mm. don't have dreams. I feel like I feel like they kind of like do what their parents did, or they fall into something because they have to pick something. But Hermie, Hermie had a dream. He wanted to be a dentist. It was like a quirky, cool dream, and I always, <laughs> I always respected that a lot. Yeah. Uh, well, rest in peace, Paul Souls. Pretty good run, making it to ninety. I'll. Uh... I'll take that. Uh, we're talking with Colin Fleming. Uh, let's move to a terrific album from Sam Cooke. And, and to me, what makes it a good album is the fact that the production gets out of the way and lets him shine on 1963's Nightbeat. Sam Cooke could get lost a little bit in some of his recordings and certainly his recordings prior to this one. He's near the end of his life. They could be, I don't want to say like schmaltzy, but Billie Holiday was the same way. Like, a lot of times, if you listen to Billie Holiday, she's in a lot of mush. But sometimes it's quite spare and spartan, and it's a small band. And this is a pretty small band for Sam Cooke. There aren't, like, a lot of lush strings, and it's not going symphonic and all of that. It, it was recorded late at night, and fittingly. So it's like a concept album of the night. I think it was like last week we spoke about Finnegan's Wake is kind of like a book of the night. Well, here is an album and some sessions that represent the nocturnal side of things. And it's, it's an album meant to be listened to. You can listen to it whenever, obviously. But there's something a little bit different, wouldn't you say, when you're sitting there at 11, 12, 1 o'clock, whatever it is, listening to Sam Cooke sing Lost and Looking than if it's like High Noon. Oh, yeah, it is most definitely mood music. And, yeah, I think it's got a, a different feel. The, the later you listen, the more alone you are, the better it is. There's a few other albums like that. Otis Blue is that way by Otis Redding and In the Wee Small Hours by oh. Frank Sinatra. Oh, yeah. Very much in this. I mean, Cook, is he doesn't write a lot of the numbers on, on this particular album. He gets a credit for arranging You Gotta Move, which... People would know from uh, Fred McDowell or the Rolling Stones of the more, most famous version, probably from 1969. And then they took it on tour with him, too, after it was on Let It Bleed. But it's uh, always with Cook, like we said, it's, it's a concept, though. And it, it's something that's meant to capture. Because when we say like mood music, it almost sounds like it's kind of this oral wallpaper. That's not what this is. Oh, no. This is like heavy-duty listening music and F. Scott Fitzgerald wrote of the real dark night of the soul at three o'clock in the morning. And this is again, that idea of soul. Yes. Soul music, but also italicize it. Soul music. Mm. Because Sam Cooke is operating on both fronts. And so like this album with that concept and with that mood and with that purpose of direction plays a big part actually in my upcoming book on Live at the Harlem Square Club, which is night music, but it's like out there, joyous, all of this in Miami and and that kind of thing. But they're they're linked in certain key ways. There's a progression here between these these thematic ideas. And so I think like for the Cook Connoisseur, this is one of the 
go-to albums. This is like one of the two or three. Mm. Harlem Square Club, I think, is like the most cookie-in. But then like this one would probably be the number two. It captures the essence, and it was a wide-ranging essence, but it captures the essence of the man and the artist better than just about everything else. And a great small group of musicians, including uh, a guy we had on the show a few years back, uh, the wonderful Hal Blaine from The Wrecking Crew. And I didn't realize until I was doing a little research over the weekend, a 16-year-old Billy Preston. Yeah, that's in the book, too. Billy Preston is like this organ prodigy, and uh, he was really racking up the dates, the sessionography. Think of uh, him as Tony Williams. I think we discussed him years ago, the drummer, the wonderkind drummer who Miles Davis was so taken by. And he was 16 or 17 when Miles Davis said, you need to be in my second grade quintet. And he was the guy who made that quintet go. And then you have this guy named uh, Clifton White, who is Sam Cooke's right-hand musical man. He plays guitar, and he's this undersung guitar hero of popular music history. Nobody knows who he is. I mean, he's sort of one of the heroes of this Sam Cooke book that I did. And he's this very rhythmic player. You might think of him as like a soul Pete Townsend. Pete Townsend played lead guitar via rhythm guitar, if that makes sense. And that's the same kind of deal that we're working with here. But it was always in tandem with Cook's voice. Cook would use his voice. Again, the great singers do this. Billy Holiday did this, very horn-like her voice. He used his voice as a succession of other instruments that we don't think of as vocal, but he was channeling those as well. Well, speaking of guitarists, uh, you wrote a recent Jazz Times piece uh, on Charlie Christian and his performance, a uh, live performance from 1941 at Minton's, which is God, just incredible to listen to. And well, you say it, it may be jazz's greatest official bootleg. It's 1941. So that's coming back 80 years now is from May. And uh, I think like if people are considering what instruments best represent jazz, they're not thinking guitar. They're going right away to the saxophone and the trumpet and those kinds of things and the drums and the voice and maybe even the bass. Like I don't think the guitar, the organ, the, uh, the, the guitar doesn't come up perhaps as much. And we don't really think of bebop as a guitar medium, but that's what was happening at this place, this, this Harlem club Minton. So it's after hours and it's just, it's live in a sense. It's more of a field recording, which is a bit different than a live recording. So you have these guys, they're just, showing up. They're pooling together. They've come from wherever they've come in the city, and they're getting together to jam. <laughs> What's happening in this crucible of Minton is that they're largely inventing the bebop medium. But one of the spearheads of that medium is Charlie Christian on guitar. He's just knocking people out with what he's playing. And it's just this nuts, razzle-dazzle, but still tasteful sort of scalar runs and no one was playing like this at the time and so somebody has a little tape recorder deal has actually probably a big tape recorder and hit record and there you go these recordings have come out in various formats over the years but you can imagine yourself again that idea of night music because mm. these same people are making this music uh, you think about it like 20 plus years later it's like oh that's Sam Cooke he's doing 
he's doing his kind of mood music version of what we were doing. But Charlie Christian asserts himself as this guy inventing bebop almost as much as Charlie Parker or Dizzy Gillespie. And as you point out in the Jazz Times piece, Colin, the tone that he achieves is so unique. Yeah, I think what I compared it to or likened it to was honey dripping down the inside of an abalone shell. It's like that kind of viscosity, but viscosity with sheen. So not like sluggish viscosity, some viscosity that can move like uh, oil for your car type of thing. It, it gets gets the wheels turning. So you recognize the best players, the best, well, I mean, the best writers. And it doesn't have to be the same tone, but somebody can just like hit a certain lick or a clause and it can be mixed up from time to time, completely different than the time before. But you always know it's them. And I think like if you don't have that, you're really not a great artist. You're not a great musician. And Charlie Christian certainly had that in spades. Uh, in another recent Jazz Times piece, you celebrate a, a great solo performance by a multi-instrumentalist. But but uh, doing the bass clarinet so proud on God Bless the Child, uh, Eric Dolphy. And again, well, you call him you call him a glue guy, uh, the, the sports equivalent, the music equivalent of a sports glue guy. What do you mean by that? I think Eric Dolphy might be the most significant modern jazz player in history, in his way, more significant than Ornette Coleman or well, Miles Davis sort of spanned a few different eras, but more significant than John Coltrane. I think Eric Dolphy was the guy that Coltrane wanted to hang out with to bounce ideas off of. He was the wise, owlish figure, and he died. He was only in his mid-30s, so he's not actually going to live that long into the whole, like, he's not there in 1965, but he's doing what he's doing with Coltrane sitting in in 1961, and he was this sorcerer. And he's playing alto sax, and he's he's walking this line between free jazz, post-bop, and commercial jazz. And he's showing up at all of these sessions, like Ornette Coleman's doing his free jazz recording, and lo and behold, there is Eric Dolphy. He just was always around when change was happening, and when something like that, like a, a Soviet coach said about Wayne Gretzky once, like the guy does, it looks like he's doing nothing. And then, like, 20 seconds later, boom, the puck is in the net. And it's like he's somehow responsible for this, but you don't even understand how. Eric Dolphy was that way. So what he did a number of times in his career was he took the bass clarinet, which would seem like an unwieldy jazz instrument, mm. and he did this solo version of Billie Holiday's God Bless the Child. And to blow everyone's mind with how harmonically advanced this was, you cannot even transcribe this piece of music. I mean, think about that. You can't notate this piece of music. I mean, across any of the versions. So he did a version of it at the Five Spot Cafe in July 1961 with Booker Little, who was his sort of like right-hand man, great trumpet player. And Booker Little is going to die later in 1961. Dolphy's going to die not that long after. And so it's like this sort of horribly tragic set of circumstances. But, man, live jazz has probably never been better than those particular gigs. The Five Spot came out, and you can go 
check it out on YouTube and stuff too. But the highlight for me was always this unaccompanied version of God Bless the Child. I mean, there's nothing like it in musicdom, period. Like, there's really no comparison I can even make to it. You could say, like, well, Anthony Braxton, like, for alto, it's just him and alto sax for the entire, like, double disc. But now there's really nothing like what Dolphy did with this particular Billy Holiday number. No, and I had no idea about how his life ended and the fact that he, he died basically from diabetes undiagnosed in Europe because they just assumed because he was a black jazz musician, they assumed he was strung out on drugs. Well, when someone is like star-crossed and they die, and Booker Little didn't die of drugs either, it's like uremia, uh, that tends to be what it is. And it's not, a, it's not a black thing. It's certainly plenty of white jazz musicians at the time. It was the culture. It was a dope culture. Like, very few people in jazz were not on, like, heroin at some point. Some kicked it, like Coltrane, but it took a toll in selling Coltrane before his time. He was a young man still. But what I'm going to do eventually is I'm going to write a novel with kind of Eric Dolphy as the basis, and it's going to be about this African-American musical pioneer who's in that time period of the civil rights movement and free jazz and the new thing, and tell it via, like, interviews and record reviews and diary entries and all that. And you can use his story as the basis for a quite different story, but, mm. like, rooted in that particular time period. It's like, no one's ever done that. So he's always been a character to me that I've sort of had, like, this this eye on, like, the way one looks at this particular like Polaris in the sky. It's like, yes, we will eventually have our... Our little date, our union. So, yeah, great stuff, Eric Dolphy. I look forward to it. Check out uh, Colin's pieces on Jazz Times. And, of course, uh, visit the website, colinflemminglit.com. Subscribe to the Many Moments More blog as well. Colin, we thank you. Okay, sounds good. That's Colin Fleming. His latest book, Meatheads Say the Realest Things, is available everywhere. Our thanks to Colin and Stephen Tobolowsky and to you for joining us this week on Downtown the Podcast, brought to you by Cross Insurance.